tonight's reading will be from 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 16. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the pagans chose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behaviors, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged by men in the fleshly room, they might live by God in the spiritual room. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. Louis Pasteur, the the great French scientist, conducted an experiment once with uh, some of his students. He wanted to demonstrate how animals adapt to dangerous conditions, and so he placed a bird in a closed box for six hours. The bird became sluggish as the air quality got worse, but didn't die. And then Pasteur introduced a new bird into the box, and uh, it died instantly. The first bird had adopted to the toxic conditions, but the second bird could not. And I think he used that experiment to show how human beings have a capacity to adopt to toxic or poisonous or bad conditions. I think that can be a principle that applies in our spiritual lives as well in that sometimes it's possible for us to adapt to things that are going on in us and around us that maybe are somewhat poisonous, but we don't realize it because we've just kind of gotten used to it. Um, I think that's the problem that Peter is addressing in tonight's passage. He describes the world that his readers came from in verse 3. He says that the the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. The social life of an ancient city revolved around pagan temple worship. There were many festivals that uh, were, occurred every year on the calendar around that temple life. And typically the temple would be served by uh, temple prostitutes, uh, sexual practices would be involved, there'd be a lot of alcohol, then that would spill over into the streets and, and turn into a lot of other things as well. And this became kind of the, the, the civic life of, uh, of an ancient Roman city. And so when you became a Christian, a follower of Christ, obviously you had to leave that life behind. And that meant you cut off all your social networks. And that became very difficult for the people that were trying to follow Christ. And sometimes the neighbors wouldn't wouldn't understand what was going on, and they would judge them. That's what Peter means when he says they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So 
So what he's addressing here is this, this reality that when you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you are becoming a part of an odd or a peculiar people. You are joining an alternative community. You are signing up for a narrow way. You are taking up the cross and choosing to live by different values. And this can be hard and this can be lonely. And what I think if we read between the lines, what's happening in in Peter's readers is that they're starting to go back. Because it's hard. You know it. It's hard to be different. It's hard to run your business in a different way than everybody else. It's, it's hard to handle your sexuality in a different way than everybody else. It's, it's hard to explore generosity in a different way than everybody. It's hard. And so after a while, you get kind of tired of it, and you start to go back. And so I think, I think what Peter is doing here is writing to encourage Christians that have set off on this lonely, narrow way and are now wondering... I kind of like the old way. I kind of think I want to go back. Well, this gets into this, this classic tension between how much we should be engaged in the culture around us and how much we should withdraw from it. When I was at the monastery last spring on retreat, I was in the bookstore, and the only time I heard a monk talk the whole week was this monk with a heavy Dutch accent came in, and they're allowed to talk in the bookstore. Um, and he picked up this book. It's called The Benedict Option by Rod Dray here. And he said, very, very good. You must read it. And um, so I went home and ordered it on Amazon for half the price. Um, <laughs> and his, his argument is, is very powerful, and I have this love-hate relationship with this book because what he is, this, first of all, he's a cultural pessimist. He thinks the dark age is upon us and it's all over. And he's saying, look, the culture's gone. What we need to do is follow the example of St. Benedict, who in, the, I guess it was the 4th century, the 5th century, when uh, the Dark Ages came and the Goths came in and everything fell apart and Rome crumbled. He, he pulled out and they formed these monastic communities, and that's how they sustained the, the faith for thousands of years in the Dark Ages, was by totally withdrawing. And that's really the argument of his whole book, is it's too late, put a fork in it, get out of town. Well, I love St. Benedict, but I also love St. Francis, who also lived in a dark age, and he decided to take monasticism to the streets and care for the poor and preach to the powerful. And so my, my critique of the book is that he seems to forget this this whole side of the Bible that talks about being present with our neighbor, about Jeremiah 29.7, being in Babylon and trying to seek the blessing and the peace of Babylon, uh, salt and light, um, the whole incarnational principle. He seems to kind of ignore that and just be ready to let the world go to hell. But he also has these quotes in here and these comments that just haunt me, and I, I, I just love this book, and I hate it. I keep going back to it. So today it kind of screamed at me, and I pulled it off the shelf again, threw open a page. He says, Every single congregation in America must ask itself if it is compromised so much with the world that it's been compromised in its faithfulness. 
Is the Christianity we've been living out in our families, congregations, and communities a means of deeper conversion, or does it just function as a vaccination against taking faith with the seriousness the gospel demands? And here's another line that haunts me. In this book, you'll meet men and women who are today's Benedicts, who know that if believers don't come out of Babylon and be separate, sometimes metaphorically, sometimes literally, their faith won't survive for another generation or two in this culture of death. Whoa. You see the argument? He said, look, if you don't withdraw from Babylon, you're going to lose your faith. Now, I immediately think, Jeremiah 29, 7, don't withdraw from Babylon. Stay there. Bless the people. But he's got a biblical argument, too. You you probably know what it is. It's Revelation 18. It's uh, uh, John is on writing to the persecuted church, and he has this vision of, of, of the demonic world system, waging war against the kingdom of God. I mean, it's, it's a heavy vision. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every wicked spirit. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins. So you've got these two principles in Scripture that are always in tension with each other. On the one hand, incarnate, in flesh, uh, put down roots, be a good neighbor, be in the world but not of it, bless the neighbor. On the other hand, get out of Dodge. It's going down. Withdraw from Babylon or it's going to take you down. It's really hard to navigate those tensions. You study the history of the church. Martin Luther said the history of the church is like a drunk on a horse. Falls off one way, falls off the other way. That's what the history of the church is like. Sometimes we're all about being one with the neighbor. Sometimes we're all about withdrawing. It's hard to hold it in tension. Now, when I think about our church, this is just for free. This is worth what we paid for it. If I think of this continuum of us as a church, on the one hand being identification and incarnation, on the other hand being withdrawal for purity, I'd put us a little bit on the, on the side of identification and maybe say we're a little weak on the oddness thing. Maybe we're a little uncomfortable with the holy peculiarity part of the Christian witness. We seem more comfortable with relating to our neighbors than we do walking away from someone or something when it contradicts the gospel. Well, the six vices Peter mentions in verse 3 are still the vices we struggle with today in a different form. In verse 2, he calls them living in the flesh for human passions instead of living by the will of God. I thought we'd just look at them briefly here. The first two Greek words, he says, and remember the whole, the whole argument here is, please don't go back. Please don't go back. Verse 1 <laughs> Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He doesn't mean you never sin again. He means when you've been baptized into Christ, when you've been identified with Christ, when you've aligned with Christ, when you've given your heart to Christ, you've made a decisive break with sin. In our baptism on last Sunday night at the birthday party, I just loved it. Chills went up and down my spine. Lindsay Bill is in the pool, and I say, as the church has always said for 2,000 years, do you renounce Satan and all his works? And she says, I do. I will live for Christ. 
when you make that decision and you move forward, it gets hard. And you want to go back. And it gets lonely being odd. So he's saying, don't go back. Don't go back to this life. The first two Greek words, sensuality and passions, have to do with sexual sins. You know, when we become a Christian, we start to think differently about our sexuality, about our bodies. Our bodies belong to the Lord. We, we use our sexuality to glorify him and to serve others we are in covenant with. But we struggle with this. Instead, we use sex to numb pain or to objectify uh, the human body. And so pornography becomes an enormous problem. Unfaithfulness becomes a problem. I think one of the things that it might be helpful at this point just to think about is what is really going on in these sins? I was with a guy one day. He'd had a, quite a battle with pornography, and, but he's really walking it out in some freedom now. And I asked him, I said, what, what did you do? You know, how did you overcome that? And he said, well, obviously I still struggle with it, but what I've learned to do is that when I'm really struggling with pornography, really, really want to take a look at something I shouldn't, I step back and I ask, What's going on in me? What's happening? What do I feel afraid of right now? What, what's down deep? And he says, sometimes that will kind of diffuse it and help me realize that the reason why I want to go to that website is not really about sex, but it's about something in my soul that needs to go to God. I think that was the same then as it was today. And porn, of course, isn't the only way we distort our sexuality. There's unfaithfulness and other ways we can use our bodies in the wrong ways. How do we come back to God when we struggle with our sexuality? Well, again, first remember that sexual sin is ultimately a spiritual problem. If a, if a wife has an affair, it's not just about the affair. It's about something going on in her soul. It's always important to dig into that. Second, find someone to talk about it. And then third, I wanted to mention this, this tonight. This is something I think we might understand more than they did 2,000 years ago, is if, if these first two sins, which today we would call sexual addiction or whatever you want to call it, if there's something that keeps drawing you back, that you're trying to escape, you feel like you've overcome it, you want to live for Christ, but you keep kind of falling back into it. One of the things that we've learned, I think, in the past century is that sexual abuse often has uh, a relationship with acting out sexual sin. Dan Allender, in a book on sexual abuse called The Wounded Heart, defines it like this, any contact or interaction, visual, verbal, or psychological, between a child, adolescent, and an adult when the child or adolescent is being used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator or any other person. Allender says that abuse can span from sexual intercourse to the use of a child as a spouse surrogate, confident, or protector. He says, if you have ten people in your Bible study, five women and five men, at least three women and two men have been sexually abused feel the lingering effects of shame. 
And then in his book, he says, what's the damage of this kind of abuse? Simply, abuse provides the raw data that seems to prove that God is not good. The victim reasons that God is like her abusive father or her preoccupied mother. The conclusion, trust is foolish, therefore I'm compelled to live my life independent of God's will. The tragedy of abuse is manifold, but one singular tragedy is that abuse victims so often find themselves repeating patterns and reentering relationships where they are violated and replay the dimensions of past abuse. I wanted to bring that up tonight just because we're talking about escaping a demonic system, Babylon. We're talking about finding freedom from a demonic system. And one of the things that can happen is that when you're converted, when you're born again, when you come to the family of God, you still bear the wounds from living in Babylon. And I can't tell you how many times uh, over the years I've been with a dear person who's struggling with some sort of... uh, sexual problems, whatever you want to call it, sexual sin, and you dig into it, and they were abused. It doesn't make it right, it doesn't excuse everything, but a lot of times when we act out sexually, it's because of a sexual wound that needs to be looked at, and and I, I think that's the kind of thing that a counselor is very helpful with. Now let's look at the next words. Drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties... And uh, that's what happened at the temple feasts. And I, I guess today we'd call that substance abuse. Um, Sandy and I, like everybody else, are watching This Is Us. And uh, Jack Pearson evidently is the country's greatest dad, certainly the best-looking dad. And we found out at the end of the last season that he also has been hiding his drinking problem. Now, why... Why does America love This Is Us? Because This Is Us. (laughs) You either are Jack Pearson, your dad was Jack Pearson, you're married to someone whose dad was Jack Pearson, your son is Jack Pearson. Lots of people are struggling with substance abuse, and they're very good at hiding it. And so one of the things that, that I think Peter is saying here is you don't need to go back to that. You don't need to go back that. Now again, one of the things I love about all souls is that we understand our freedom in Christ. You know, we don't have a lot of rules about don't do this, don't do that. We leave it up to you to study the Bible and see how you should live. A lot of us feel free to go to a bar and have a beer and you know, it's all good. But I can't tell, I, I, I don't want to tell you how many times over the years a spouse or a friend has called me or sat down and said he's drinking too much and he's hiding it. There's always a balance in there between freedom and responsibility. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. You ask yourself. Do you drink alone and in secrecy? Do you have a drink first thing in the morning? Do you continue to drink even when it causes you financial or health problems? Do you have a problem stopping drinking when you've begun? 
or are you having problems with uh, prescription drugs? It's a very big problem exploding in the church right now. It's a very common problem. Peter says, don't, don't go back. Don't go back to that. And again, how, how do you escape that? This is not about shame. This is not about beating you up. It's about getting you free. And the way you escape that is first you tell somebody. You tell somebody that's safe that you have a problem. And then if you need more support, you start to work back towards that. I mean, you know this is a huge problem in the church. This is exploding, and it's taking people out. So if that's you tonight, if you feel like you're being pulled back to an old way because you're just addicted to nicotine, opioids, alcohol, marijuana, just talk to somebody. Not to get beat up, just to help you start on your road to freedom. Well, the last one, he talks about the root of all sins, lawless idolatries. You know, he's talking about going and worshiping an idol at the temple, and of course, we're not going to do that. But today, I think we could define an idol as any person or thing that we turn to for our security and our significance, other than God. An idol is any person or thing that we turn to for our security or our significance, other than God. And this is where it gets real subtle. It's hard to know if you're an, an idolater, isn't it? I mean, if you're checking in every Tuesday night at the ISIS temple, that's kind of obvious. This is harder to spot. And what I find in my own life is almost a daily battle between worshiping the true, true God and going back to idol worship. Here's, here's how I've found, here are two symptoms that help me kind of press in and see whether or not I'm kind of in the idol worship Anger and depression. Now, note, this, note, not all anger, not all depression is related to idolatry. Caps, quotes, I get that. But here's what I'm saying. Anger comes from a block goal, right? So if I live by this lie that says, I have to, fill in the blank, succeed financially, be the smartest in my class, be married, whatever it is. I have to have this to be secure and significant. And then something happens that blocks my goal. I'll be angry, and if I don't deal with that long enough, I'll be depressed. So in my life, at least, anger and depression can be, not always, can be a sign that I've fallen into idolatry. So Peter's saying, you don't have to go back. Go back there. That's not how I made you or how God made you. Well, then he explains a little bit about what we might do to keep from going back. And the first part we already looked at in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I, I think what he means is following Christ means suffering in the flesh. Doing the right thing, turning towards Christ, turning away from self, turning away from greed, turning away from envy, turning away from a world all about myself is 
causes some pain. It's hard. It's just hard. But he says, have the mind in you that Jesus had. That's the whole model of Christ, right? That's the whole model of Christ. Sacrificing self to do the will of God. And honestly, one of the most sacrificial things that you can do, if we're going to go back to that list of vices, those six pagan vices that are our six vices too, or at least some of them, one of the most sacrificial things you can do, quit hiding it, ask for help. I know it's humiliating. I've, I've had to do it myself. But to go to that safe person, and if you don't have one, Shame on us. Help us find you one. But if you don't have one, go to a therapist. Wherever you go, you've got to ask for help. And by the way, this is particularly for anybody here who's in some kind of a job where you feel like admitting that you're struggling would compromise your career. That's a soul killer. You're a counselor. You're a teacher, you're a coach, you're a nonprofit worker, you're a pastor, and you think, I can't tell anybody that. Yeah, you can. It's all right. It'll be all right. We'll work it through. Well, the last part of this sermon, or this, this little passage, Peter says, you know those people that are making fun of you, they're going to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So the big idea of verses 5 and 6 is pretty clear. He's saying, look, everybody's got to give an account to God. You're choosing to follow God. Stay in the path. That's where you want to be. That's how you want to end your life. That's the way you want to live your life. There's going to be accountability for the people that are making fun of you. Okay, that's fairly clear. The part that's not so clear is verse 6. And since we're probably never going to come back to this verse uh, in the history of my pastorate with you, I thought we'd at least take five minutes to look at it. So, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Who are the dead that Christ preached to? There are three views. View number one, the dead are the spiritually dead. That he's using this as a spiritual metaphor and it's, he's preaching to the dead and the spiritually dead and they are born again in Christ. Problem with view number one, the context seems more to be literally dead. View number two, the dead are the old covenant saints. The people who died Uh, Before Christ came to preach the gospel, that uh, when Christ descended into hell, this is, by the way, in the Apostles' Creed. You might have noticed that. It's kind of, you might read it and go, what? I believe that? (laughs) Well, this is the verse where it comes from. The medieval church called it the harrowing of hell. There's some powerful medieval sermons on this text. That Christ went down into hell, preached to all the old covenant saints that had died, and that they might live in the Spirit or be born again in the Spirit. That's view number two. 
problem with view number two is that seems like you're reading a lot into the text that's not really there and it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. View number three, that the dead are the dead. Uh, that Jesus Christ, in between Friday and Sunday, actually descended into hell, preached the gospel to all the dead, and they get a second chance to respond to the gospel. This, this is a, if you're going to go on a universalistic uh, path, this would probably be the best verse you got. Uh, the problem with that view is that there are other passages that teach that judgment is once and for all, and we're accountable for the gospel when we hear it. So, which is the correct view? I have no idea. Okay. Let's pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs>